So Barefoot became a conglomeration of suggestions from blue collar workers in the wine industry. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Michael Houlihan. How are you? I'm great. Great to be with you, Eric. Great to have you. So always like to start taking it all the way back to childhood. Did you come out of the womb and immediately were like a master psalm, knew everything about wine, and were you know, hosting dinner parties? Like Take me way back to the three or four-year-old Michael. Well, I guess the three-year-old Michael, let me think. I think that was the sandbox, Michael. You know, I had to have the biggest castle in the sandbox. You were competitive from the start. Yeah, well, it was it was like building things. I like to build things, that's for sure. So, yeah, I, you know, in those days, you didn't buy toy. Your parents didn't buy toys for you. You built your own toys. So, you know, I built my own box racer, right? And uh, I got all these parts together, and I built a bicycle. And, nice. You know, I, I had a job uh, as as a paper boy, you know, I'd ride around and throw the newspapers up on people's porch. If I was lucky, they would land there. <laughs> <laughs> and where did you grow up? Early and often, I realized that I was going to have to be self-employed just because I really respected the freedom that I had uh, to not have to ask my parents for allowance money or this or that. So I wound up getting job after job. I started off working for a big supermarket as a courtesy clerk. And that's where you grab bags of people's groceries and you walk them out to the car for them. Yeah. You put them in the car, right? And then I, you know, graduated and I got to be a mop guy. I got to mop the store. See, and then, then I finally got to stock the stock the food, and then I got to uh, be a checker. Yeah, and uh, so I had that job off and on all the way into college. But right. it was interesting because and where were where were you from? Oh, I was born in San Francisco and raised in the Bay Area. Okay, got it. So you've always been up there. Nice. Yeah, kind of an I'm an urban refugee these days. I, I live in the country, but I'm I'm here with a vengeance. You know. Yeah. No, <laughs> that's fun. All right. So you were saying you you always so when did you start working in that market? Funny enough, that was my high school job as well. Was went from mopping to stocking to cashier. I think I started like when I was like 12, 13 years old, you know, and because I had that connection, I was able to maintain that and it yeah. helped me get through school. I had all kinds of jobs, you know, in college. I had to put myself through school. Mm-hmm. You know, I was raised as a Catholic. I went to Catholic school, Catholic grammar school, Catholic high school. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go to Catholic college. And so my dad says, uh, well, what are you going to do about school, you know, after high school? And I said, well, I think I'm going to go to one of those Jesuit schools, you know, where you graduate and you make that $300,000 a year board member job. Yeah. He goes, but you don't have that Jevy money right now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I knew I was going to UC Berkeley. Terrible school from what I hear. Yeah, it was awful, wasn't it? <laughs> well, that's great. Okay. And so what kind of job? And, and I'm curious, so were your parents entrepreneurial or were they, like, what did they do? My dad was into politics and public administration. My mother was 
into large organizations and, and, and helping to run large organizations. So, and the thing is, there's a lot to this, you know, a lot of this has to do with environmental influence, but there was never any question in my mind that I was going to go into business because I saw my parents as successful people. I grew up in a neighborhood where the other kids' parents were successful. They all had businesses. And so the expectation was, you are going to do this. It wasn't like you're not. And so it was a lot harder than I thought, of course. You know, I mean, just beating the books and getting through school was a big deal. But yeah, I, I kind of had it beat into my head that that's what I was going to do. And I went to work for the federal government, you know, kind of following in my dad's footsteps. And I worked in urban renewal, helping cities rebuild themselves. And one of the problems they had was, how are we going to move these businesses that are in the center of town? They've been there for 20 years. We're going to move them out of there and build, rebuild the whole center of town. Yeah. And there might not be room for them. And if we move them and they go out of business, they're going to sue us and they're going to win. So yeah. they got these young whippersnappers out of college like me to go in there and basically categorize their business and, and memorialize it. In, in other words, write what we now call a franchise for the business. Uh -huh. Here's how you unlock the door in the morning. Here's how you lock it at night. Here's how you make a bank deposit. Here's how you hire people. Here's how you greet people. Yeah. Okay. So in the process of doing that with business after business and, and helping them successfully relocate, I learned a lot about the nuts and bolts of business. And I became a business consultant. I left my federal government job, much to the chagrin of my grandmother, you know, how could you leave that fine civil service job, Michael, with all that security, you know, <laughs> and I could do it easily because I was waiting for my boss to die just to get a, just to get a raise, you know, yeah. and I got out on my own and I was working with a lot of people that I'd known from the federal government days and I was helping them in private industry. And so then I said, well, you know, I can do this anywhere. I don't have to do this in the Bay Area. I've always wanted to live in the country, so I'm going to move to the wine country. And I didn't move there because I love the wine. I, I, lo I love the, the river. I, I love the oceans. I, I love, you know, the fact that it wasn't developed because I grew up in the city, you see. So for me, it was like freedom. And and here, now I had now I had a way of making enough money to live there. So I went up there and of course I got sucked into the wine vortex because that's where the money was for consulting. Got it. And where did you move originally? So I originally moved to Santa Rosa. Uh -huh. And then from Santa Rosa, I moved out uh, closer to the ocean and the Russian River Valley. And I wound up working for like four or five different wineries. And I would help them with like subdividing their property or getting getting a new financing or trying to negotiate with the government because I was the government. So I knew yeah. how to get things through those guys. And, and how old were you at that point? Oh, gosh, I guess I was about, I guess I was in my 20s, maybe, maybe mm -hmm. like something like maybe late 20s. Which is yeah. pretty impressive. I mean, it, it takes a lot of money to get into the wine business generally. So you're probably working with some pretty wealthy individuals that are hiring some kid, for lack of a better word, in their 20s, yeah. helping with some pretty big issues around financing and government work. So Right. Well, I, I, had a, I had a niche and I was not afraid of bureaucrats. I could make friends with bureaucrats and I knew how to navigate things through the structures. So I had this skill. And then one day I was at a rock and we used to have rock and roll clubs with real bands, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, they'd have like a lead guitar, a bass guitar, a scratchy rhythm guitar, a four-horn rhythm section, mind you. 
Yeah. Everybody was jumping. The whole place, our joint was jumping, okay? So this was not like watered down hip hop or something. This was the, this was serious, yeah. you know, with a lot of brass. Anyway, kind of James Brownie style music, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I meet this gal and we fall in love. And, you know, we have been together for 37 years. And that was Bonnie Harvey. And we're not together very long before I realize that she's a consultant too, but she's in a different kind of consulting. She's helping these wineries not just subdivide their property, get refinancing. She's actually helping them run it, you know, from an office management and oversight standpoint. Yeah. So, you know, I got a brainiac on my hands. And one day she comes to me and she says, listen, she says, I have this client who is owed 300 large by this winery and they haven't paid him in three years. And I'm worried for him. I said, well, what do you want me to do? She says, well, I want you to go negotiate the deal. And here, so I just met this gal and already she's got me out collecting 300 large. Yeah. You know, it's like, did I make mob or what? What is this? So I go to this winery and the day I show up, they declare bankruptcy. And the guard at the gate says, I hope you're not here to collect any money because we filed the chapter 11 this morning and you can take your ticket and wait your turn with the rest of us. And I thought, oh, this is going nowhere. So I get into the meeting and I look out the window and I see all this row of tanks, these stainless steel tanks, they're huge, right? They're like, some are 18 feet in diameter and 25 feet high. Wow. And I said, what's in those tanks? And they said, oh, oh, that's bulk wine. That's like Cabernet Sauvignon and Sauvignon Blanc bulk wine. So I look out this other window and I look like I'm looking into a, a, you know, some kind of a handball court. And in the middle of it is this thing that looks like a chrome locomotive. And so I just euphemistically said, what's with the chrome locomotive and the handball court guys? And they said, oh, that's that's not a chrome locomotive. That That's a bottling line. I said, a bottling line? Yeah, that's a clean room. I said, oh, I said, can it, does it work? Oh, yeah, it does 3000 cases a day. And then it hit me like a chrome locomotive. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to get any money out of these people. So why don't I offer a trade? So I said, how about this? We'll clear this debt for 300 large. You give me 300 large, that's $1,000, worth of wine and bottling services. So basically pay us off what you owe us in bottles of wine that don't have a label. Yeah. And I thought, well, we'll get a label, you know, we'll come up with a marketing program. We'll learn everything there is to know about distribution, all the laws and all the 50 states. How hard could that be, right? <laughs> Love it. How long could that take? How long yeah. could that take? So Bonnie and I go out and we, we get started. And as we do, the guy that we're trying to save the money for, he bails out. He says, you know, I can't do this. He says, I'm a winemaker. I'm a grower. I don't want to have anything to do with that. That's mercantile business. You know, you're talking about retail. You're talking about wholesale. I don't have time for that. And so we said, okay, okay, okay. How about this? Instead of us working for you, you work for us. You become our winemaker. And instead of the winery owing you this money, and you're going to get three cents on the dollar when the lawyers are done with it in 10 years, which is what happened, yeah. we'll pay you a hundred cents on the dollar. And you just trust us to owe you the money. So we did. And so that's how Barefoot Wine gets started on a debt. But of course, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And yeah. we got into this thing. And I mean, how long did you know Bonnie at that point? Oh, I've known her for about a year when we dove into this. Okay. 
but in that year, I knew that she was really good with math and details. She was the kind of gal who could get into a contract from a bank and show you the clauses that negate the contract. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> their lawyers had approved. Their lawyers had approved, Eric. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't. Yeah, I've seen that. So that's awesome. And you seem like you're the guy that really saw the opportunities and so were able to be kind of the vision side of it. Well, I wasn't afraid of the challenges. And maybe that was because ignorance was bliss, Eric. Yeah. You know, if you don't know what you're up against, you go out there, you know, like the crusader. So, you know, I went out there and, you know, at least I was humble enough to realize that I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so I started asking people, as we say, we made friends with people in low places. These yeah. are people with dirt under their fingernails. They do the real job. They're driving the forklift. They're driving the truck. They're running the bottling line. They're putting bottles on the shelf in the supermarket. They're pricing items. These are the people who are the real grist of the mill. And we asked them, you know, what works? What doesn't work? And they gave us insights that the white collar workers didn't give us because they were dealing with the real McCoy, not what you hoped it would be, not what college told you it should be, yeah. what was actually working. And they yeah. gave us insights about the label and all this stuff. And we immediately employed them. So Barefoot became a conglomeration of suggestions from blue collar workers in the wine industry. Mario, and where'd you get the name Barefoot? Well, Barefoot, you know, at the time, the wine industry was real snobby. Bonnie and I, you know, we were drinking beer and martinis. We, we didn't really like wine. And we thought the people behind it, you know, were thinking too much of themselves. And, you know, everybody's trying to speak French at, at the time. Yeah. And we said, you know, if we're going to do wine, we've got to get as far away from nose in the air as humanly possible. And, of course, Barefoot is yeah. the opposite end of the body, right? Plus... Yeah. It's has these other connotations that are interesting, like, you know, when you're barefoot, you're relaxed, you know, it's the opposite of uptight. And also, you know, wine was originally crushed that way from Roman times and before barefoot. So we came up with this barefoot footprint and, you know, it, and Bonnie actually perfected it. It was so funny because we had this artist down in LA who was working for us and she said, well, I know you want a foot on your label, but, you know, can you send me a foot? And, you know, she kept drawing these feet that looked like a brick. And so Bonnie said, oh, where am I going to get a long, thin foot with a high arch? And she says, you know, I've got one of those right here on the end of my leg. And so she sent me out for the biggest piece of art paper I could find, you know, and a big ink pad. And she put her foot on the ink pad, put her foot on the paper and sent it off to L.A. and said, more like that. So, so the inspiration for the foot is her foot, which is awesome. That's, that's how her foot gets on the on the label, the largest wine brand in the world. Yeah, exactly. How many bottles have you guys sold at this point? Or well, I haven't, but Ian J. Gallo is up there like 26 million, I think. Yeah. It's like just crazy. Yeah. And, you know, so it took us took us a while to build it. You know, it's state by state. People say, I don't know how you can sell in Europe with all those laws. I said, well, I don't know how I can sell in America with all those laws. You see, because there's more laws between the states than there is in the countries in Europe. Yeah, correct. And so we actually started selling barefoot overseas. We sold some in China. We sold some in Japan. We sold some- Before going to the US or you were already through the US? We were in the US, but we were only in a few places. When we started in the US, we chose- places that we could manage 
And today I'm a business consultant and I, I work with people who have good ideas and they are consumer products. That, that means you can hold it in your hand. It has a label on it. It gets scanned. It goes through the scanner. It's on a shelf in a real bricks and mortar store. And most people who get started in that business, they go too fast. They spread themselves too thin and they sell more than they can service. Right. And the service that is required is like shocking. It's like, oh my God, you mean I have to do that? I mean, I had a suit and tie on. It was 87 degrees. You know, I'm in Publix number 375 in Tallahassee, Florida, big chain, you know, 700 stores. And I'm down there. What am I doing? I have a price gun in my hand, like the insurance lady. And I'm pricing my own wine. Why? Because if the clerk didn't do it, it wouldn't scan. If it didn't scan, the buyer would say I wasn't selling in that store and I'd be discontinued. Oh, wow. So I had to fly from California to Florida to solve that problem personally. Wow. You know, and I get a call, you know, in Minnesota, the guy says, oh, yeah, Barefoot's not selling over here, you know, and it's with the MGM store, you know, they got about 280 stores or something. It's not selling. So I go over there and you know why it's not selling? The, The potato chips are in front of it. That's why. You can't see it. It's covered with potato chips. Oh, that's so they would have shelved in front of it? Yes. So, I mean, if you're not there, this is the kind of stuff that goes on. Yeah. So, like I said, you'd be surprised at what's required, you know, when you really say, oh, my God, we're going to do a product. We're going to sell it in all the stores in the United States. Hey, good luck, buddy. Yeah. You know, you're going to need an army to just manage if you're a new product and no one's ever heard of you, a lot of times the label doesn't speak for itself and you got to support it with marketing. You got to support it with sales. A lot of times people do sampling, all those things. Well, you have to have an excellent product. You know, it has to be a market disruptor. It has to have a really compelling label, but all that you're going to die in a warehouse in Kansas. If you can't get it through the distribution system and you know, the distribution system, it's like, First, you got to sell your own guys. Then you got to sell the owners of the distributors in every city. And they're buying it for political reasons. They're, they're taking barefoot because it's already being sold at the major supermarket in their town. And they're going to get that business. You notice I didn't say anything about wine or money or quality. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, now you got to get through a sales manager. And all he cares about is making his numbers. And yeah. you say, don't worry. We got our own rep here. He's going to sell it. Even if your guys don't, you'll make the numbers. So now he's happy. Then you got to go to the reps and they're coin operated. And you got to say, look, man, you know, there's a spiff in it for you. You know, it'll help you make your Porsche payment. Sell yeah. this. Okay. Nothing about wine, nothing about metals, nothing about quality or price. I could be selling hammers at this point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Then I got to make the sale from the distributor to the retailer for the distributor. So yep. I go into the to the retailer and tell them why they got to buy it. And they want to know that it's being sold in other stores like their, theirs and it's moving quickly so that they don't get stuck with a barking dog, right? Yep. You think I'm done? I'm not done. Now I have to sell their clerk. And the clerk, you know, he's the guy who puts it on the shelf and talks to Mrs. McGillicuddy and makes a recommendation. Now, what if any of those links in that chain break? Yeah. Then your product does not show up. It doesn't show up. So now Mrs. McGillicuddy comes in and Barefoot's not there anymore. See, now most people go into business, they go straight for McGillicuddy. Yeah. They don't even think about all those other steps that you've got to go through and all those other sales. And so many verticals are like that in business. You know, it's glorified, it's simplified in the movies and what have you. But when you really get into it, you go, oh my God, you know, this is a system. 
long did it take you to learn that system? Because I know there was a three tier when you started. Did they have that three tier role where? Yeah, well, the three tier role goes way back because wine is heavy and it also needs to be air conditioned. And anytime you have a product that's heavy, we wind up with having to move it with trucks and pallets and forklifts and putting it in warehouses. And when you do that, from that warehouse to the stores, you have to get there and back in one day. So that means that that distributor's warehouse can only service an area of about 100 miles. Yeah. And then there's another distributor that does the next 100 miles of the next city. And if there's mountains in the way, you got a distributor on both sides. See? Yeah. So it's very, it gets very physical when it gets heavy. But how long did it take me? Well, first of all, I couldn't believe it. So I was in denial, you know, yeah. this, what do they call it? The, the seven steps of uh, uh, whatever yeah. it is. But yeah. by the time I got to acceptance, I think that's the last one where you take action. I had already argued for fatally all the commonly held misconceptions about American commerce that you you naturally think is true. Like I didn't see it on the shelf, so it doesn't exist. That's wrong. It exists. It just isn't here. Yeah. <laughs> it's five stages of grief. Or, or how about this one? The store has a financial reason to sell it. They'll sell it. Yeah. No, oh, they wow. don't have a financial reason to sell it. Nope. <laughs> so it turns out it's all about you. You you know, how hard do you want to work, buddy? Yep. And I would say that we spent probably three quarters of our time in distribution management and only one quarter of our time in winemaking. Good stat. And I think that's the case with every, as you said, CPG consumer company, like yeah. less about the product and more about the distribution. Than you, go in, you go into an Ace Hardware store and you see Stanley Tools. Yeah. That's a brand. The Stanley has its own reps. His reps are going into these stores, but the tools are being bought through a distributor. Yeah. So why is Stanley doing the job that the distributor should do? Yeah. It's like you, you go you go to the supermarket and you ask the person, you know, can you tell me where the butter is? And she says, I don't know. I work for Coca-Cola. Yeah. Well, what the hell is she doing in the store? Yeah. See? So there, there's your little clue. There's your clue. It's sort of like, it's kind of like a farmer's market, you know? Clean up your stall when you're done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so how quickly when you, like you, got this deal done where you had it financed by the guy that was owed money and you took over this bankrupt bottler. How long did it take you to start making business happen? Like how quickly did you actually start turning money? You had some business chops, so you knew what you were doing in some ways, but like how long before you felt like this is actually going somewhere? In the first year, we sold 18,000 cases, which is huge. Mm -hmm. And what we did is, and I have a great audio book that I'm going to give a free chapter to your listeners to. Awesome. It's a, and they can listen to the first chapter. It's a half an hour long, but it covers what I'm going to say. So, you know, I go into this buyer for the, one of the largest supermarkets in California and I give him my pitch and he says, I can't take this. He says, you know, nobody's ever heard of anything called barefoot. Are you going to spend $2 million on advertising? I said, no, I, I said, I don't have a budget like that. He says, well, I can't put it in and no, no supermarket, no box store is going to carry it. And I said, well, what am I going to do? You know, I bottle it all up for you. He says, I guess you got to sell every mama pop in every corner grocery store, you know, and every bar and restaurant until Barefoot becomes a household name. And I said, that's going to take years. And he said, well, you better get started then. <laughs> and so for the first two or three years, I was on the street selling to every mama papa 
And it was tough because they had the same problem. You know, nobody's ever heard of this. Why do I take a risk? But something interesting happened. I get a telephone call from this guy in Chinatown in San Francisco. And he says, I'm, you know, part of the Chinatown, you know, neighborhood association. We're trying to build a kids after school park. You're a big, rich, you know, vintner from Sonoma County. Would you write us a check for 50 grand? And I almost laughed. I said, Hal, I said, I don't know if you got the right number or not. I said, but we don't have that kind of money. Now I thought about it and I thought, you know, I'll tell you what though, I'll give you wine. We have a lot of wine and we can't sell it. I'll give you wine. You can use it for your fundraiser. You can auction it off. Maybe you can use the money to, you know, buy some slides, some swings, a sandbox. He says, okay, you know, you would have had, rather had the money. About a month later, we noticed that the sales in that neighborhood are going crazy. Huh. So we try that in another neighborhood and it works. And we try it in another neighborhood and it works again. And we start calling it worthy cause marketing because we were supporting worthy causes that yep. were in the neighborhoods that surrounded the stores where our products were for sale. Wow. And so that's what we used to market our product across the country. And what year was this? Like, What year did you get started with Barefoot? Oh, we got started really in 85 through, yeah. say, 86 to 90. We didn't really know what we were doing until about 95 by 95, we really knew what we were doing, and we were working very closely with the chain stores coast to coast. We were in 28 foreign countries. We sold it in 05, and then we were hired by our acquirer to work for them and show them how we did it. And as they say, keep the barefoot spirit alive because they're a big company. So in fact, we wrote a book. It's called The Barefoot Spirit, and it's, it's about the entrepreneurial attitude. It's called How Hardship, Hustle, and Heart Built America's Number One Wine Brand. And let me yeah. tell you, hardship, big time. Hustle, yeah. don't fool around. You got to be really fast on your feet. And then heart. If you don't have a heart for your community, you're going to fail. You know, yeah. you really, you really got to address the community. You can't just address the product, you know, with the features and benefits. Yep. So, and was it Gallo that bought you guys? Yes, E and J. Okay. Got it. They did a marvelous job. They not only acquired it, but they kept it intact. So many large companies, when they acquire a brand, the first thing they do is they rebrand it, or yep. you know, they they it wasn't invented here. We're going to fix it, or they reposition it. And those brands just they kind of just tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. They go away. Yep. Agreed. Gallo was smart about it. And they did an excellent job. Awesome. And that's, yeah, as you said, like knowing a lot of entrepreneurs myself and a lot of people that have had exits, it's very rare that they speak positively about the acquirer on the entrepreneur side. So for you to be able to say that means a lot, I'm sure to them too. And I got introduced to Stephanie Gallo recently, actually, who's a great woman. Oh, she's uh, great. She's great. Yeah. The whole family is fantastic. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Heartfelt folks. And how long did you stay there? You, you sold in 2005. How long did you stay on board? I stayed on board for a little over a year. Okay. And, you know, it was a challenge for me because I was an entrepreneur and here I was working with this giant company, you know, that had divisions and, you know, squads and teams and, you know, all these, all these divisions of labor. So, you know, things that we took for granted, you know, in our company, or somebody would overhear you on the phone and then they know what was going on. Yeah. But in a big company, you got to write a memo about it, right? I didn't ask, how many people were you when you sold? How many people worked at Barefoot? We had 40 that worked directly for us, and we okay. had about 400 on contract. Got it. Okay, so it's still a pretty small organization. Mm -hmm. that we had another, yeah, but, but it was 
the, the thing is that what we did at Barefoot is we ran the company based on the idea that you can outsource everything except for quality control, accounting, and sales. Sorry. Everything else you can out, outsource. So You're the people my business and don't even know it right now, which is a, just fantastic. We're an outsourced CMO and marketing team is Hawk Media. So. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So the idea is, you know, there's always somebody out there who will take your sub job contract. The question yeah. is, how do you police it? How do you police the sub job contract so that you're getting the kind of quality control yep. that your that your customers deserve? Now, if we had our own winery, our own bottling line, and our own vineyards, and we made a mistake, we would be under a tremendous amount of financial pressure to put that on the market, even though it was mediocre, just to get through with it. But that would have hurt our reputation. So yeah. the way we did it was we said, unless it is to these exact specs as in our contract, we're not going to pay you. Yeah. So you're going to get stuck with a bad job. Yeah. So that changed that changed the paradigm significantly. And then we had our person, our employee was in their company policing it and managing it when it was being done. Nice. So, so we exhibited a tremendous amount of control on quality. And as far as sales is concerned, you know, people say, oh, somebody else is going to take care of sales. No, they might sell you marketing services, yep. but they're not going to actually make sales for you. You're Agreed. going to make the sales. Yeah, we always call ourselves a support team for a sales team when there's a sales team required. Like when we're going consumer brands and direct to consumer, different. But when we're working with any type of business that takes a sales aspect, it's like, we're here to support them, but you need sales. Amen. And, and the other thing too, Eric, is you can't outsource accounting. Now, maybe at the end of the year, you can outsource to a CPA, but he's going to want to see your bookkeeping. The reason that you can't outsource accounting is you need to know how you did at the end of the month before the 10th day of the new month. That's yeah. fast. That is really fast. And if you don't know, if you yeah. don't have your dashboard filled in by the 10th day of the new month, you might overlook a mistake or a mistake might exacerbate, you yeah. see? So it's really important to be on top of those numbers. We learn so much about business itself. I, I would say we learn more about business than we did about wine. You yeah. Know? On that note, so 15 years ago, you left Gallo and you became a business consultant right away. What'd you do once you, you had this? I assume it was a decent outcome for you. You built the number one wine company in the world. So I, I well, hope that it paid you well. <laughs> what happened was we had so many people within Gallo and our former employees and our, our former contracted folks who said, you know, Michael and Bonnie, you've got to write a book. You've got to write a book that incorporates this philosophy of business, you know? So we thought, well, we'll write a book. So we went out and we looked at these business books and you know how business books are. Here's the three things you got to do, the five things to never do, the 20 things your customer wants from you, right? Next book, it's the same damn thing. Okay. So what are they selling? They're selling outlines. Okay. These are outlines because for the last 25 years, we got into this thing about how to simplify it, get it down to some key points, right? Make a word out of it. We said, that's BS. You know, we're not going to do that. So we decided we're going to write a story, you know, like a cliffhanger, you know, yeah. tune in next week and see if Bonnie and Michael go to jail or if they go bankrupt or if their top customer leaves them or, you know, if they get that person they're looking for. Yeah. And so we wrote it like that. And in the process, we became a New York Times bestseller in the business division for, uh, I, I believe it was like nine weeks. Wow. That's and we were very, we were very incredibly hard to do. Nine weeks is very often. 
very difficult, very difficult. And so then when, after that happened, we went out on a speaking tour and we started speaking all over the world. We spoke to universities that taught entrepreneurship, over 60 of them, and they use our book, you know, as required reading. And then we also decided that, you know, we could teach entrepreneurship. So we started inviting students from all over the world who were studying entrepreneurship to our home in the wine country, which is a nice estate. And we'd walk around in the trees and by the creeks and the waterfalls, and, and we would talk to them about things that had to do with entrepreneurship and the mindset. So we did that for a while. And then we became writers and we started writing for all the business journals and, you know, the Entrepreneur Magazine and all that stuff and wrote over a thousand articles. Wow. And then the content together. <laughs> yeah, we do. And you know, I'll talk to you offline about the content because I really want to monetize that in a different way than I am. Anyway, so that opened the door for consulting. People started coming to us and they said, you know, would you fix my business? I want to start this product. You know, I don't know how to distribute it. And so then we became consultants. And so then, so, so all that happened. We were speakers, we were writers, we were consultants, and that became, you know, our day job. We really enjoyed it, Eric, because it was so rewarding, you know, to have somebody write us a little email and say, oh, you know, four years ago, I saw you in New York and you, you know, you were talking about these principles. I applied them to my business and I tripled my income. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's, it's really great. Yeah. It's, it's awesome to see. Cause you, I mean, it's one of those things I would assume you did it for so many years. It's easy to take it for granted in the sense of like you, you spent 20 years on barefoot, but you also spent years before that business consulting years before that working in businesses that all that knowledge is now natural to you. But when you talk to someone that has none of that experience and you can highlight a few simple things that are simple to you, you can legitimately change the course of someone's business in a 20 minute conversation. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, we're at a point now where the people that we work with who are our clients, we actually interview them like they were going to come to work for us. Yeah. And we want to know, is this person coachable, right? Is their business scalable? Can their business run without them? Are they interested in monetizing their brand equity? And by the way, do they have a knockdown, drag out success on their hands? Yeah. Not the other way around. Yeah. So do you guys invest or take equity or how do you work in that sense? Well, the way we work typically is we get a fee for attending meetings where we become on their board of advisors and we're sounding boards like every week or twice a week or once a month, depending on the stage of the business. And then when they get to the point of acquisition, we take a percentage of what the acquirer pays for that business. Oh, got it. So yes, we're investing because we're certainly not charging them enough money. Yeah, doing. that's why you're doing it. exactly. Here's 30 years of experience. What do you say? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so at this point, I'm curious. So two kind of final questions for you. Number one, what's next? Do you want to keep building out this consultancy? Do you have something on the horizon that you're excited about? Yes, I have something I'm very excited about. It's called Business Audio Theater. So we took our book yeah. and, you know, one day we're, we're speaking to 1,500 people and we noticed 700 of them are wearing earbuds. This is four years ago when earbuds just started coming out. 
And we said, okay, what are you listening to? Is it hip hop? Is it rock? What is it? And they said, oh no, one lady said, I'm listening to War and Peace. The damn book is so thick and I can listen to it this way. When I want to, I can bike, I can change my baby's diapers, I can listen to it. Another guy says, oh no, I'm listening to podcasts, how to improve my business. And we said, wow, audio's going nuts. You yeah. know, we need to get our book into audio. So we yeah. bought the top 10 business audiobooks. We listened to them and they were great and we learned a lot but they were all read to you. They were all had narrators and yep. God help you if you didn't like the sound of the narrator's voice because you were with them for seven hours. Yeah. Right? So we said, well, let's do something different. So we got this idea from Prairie Home Companion, Guy Noir, Private Eye, right? We're driving across the desert one day and here comes Prairie Home Companion on public radio. And it's this copy of a 1945 radio theater, you know? Yep where this guy who's a private detective, he says, yeah, you know, it was a, it was a rainy night in the city. I knew she was trouble when she walked in and with her raincoat and, you know, this kind of thing. And so we thought this is a really cool way to tell a story because you're not talking to the person in the first person and sounding patronizing. You actually have an actor playing the part of the founder and you have other actors playing the part of protagonists and antagonists. And you see the founder trying to negotiate these huge challenges. And sometimes the founder fails. And yeah. after a while, you're listening, you're pulling for the founder, you're identifying and you're pulling. And so what we want to do here is we want to offer businesses an onboarding tool, if you will, and a tool to help them find the kind of people that are interested in their business and a tool that's going to help people identify with their business and stay there. Because young people today, if you're 24 to 34, you got two kids and a mortgage, you got to ask yourself this question, is where I'm working with good for my kids or not? Yeah. See, so yeah. ultimately, you've got to say, this is a temporary job until I find the company I can identify with. Yeah. See? In other words, I don't want to just make a living. I want to make a difference. So the way that we are selling this tool, Business Audio Theater, it is a tool that businesses can use to show their employees and everybody else, all their stakeholders, who they are yeah. as people by taking them through their own story. Love that. That's really cool. I think that's, it, you know, they talk about sort of a job preview, which is like the HR term of like when you're coming to the job, but it's usually like, this is what a day in the life looks like versus like a true narrative and story around the business. I think that's, that is really cool. All right. One last question. I think you're going to have a good one for this. What is one piece of advice you'd give to someone trying to really achieve their dreams and something that you think is not normally talked about? work hard, be smart, sure. But like, what's something that you think most people don't mention that really comes with the territory of wanting to achieve your dreams? I think that what you have to do is ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. You know, be humble. Go to people in the industry where you want to see your dream realized and ask the people in that industry who are doing the real work what they think. And you'll get insights that you would never get from the top players because they're handling those goods every day. And they know the goods they're handling and they know the goods that they handle for a short time and then it went away. And the ones that are sitting in the warehouse and not moving, they know. They know what's wrong with the labels. They know what's wrong with the names, the catchphrases. They know what's wrong. And so my advice is get an education from people who don't have a formal education about your industry. Because I think formal educations tend to hype us up and, and make us believe a lot of, you know, stuff that's, that's abstract, yeah. you know, it's not the real McCoy. 
Yep. No, my dad always used to rant when I was a kid about those damn MBAs. They're always screwing things up. <laughs> he was right. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. Oh, it was so much fun, Eric. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Of course. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.